Hello, I'm Andrew Scrivani. And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Welcome back to the Chef John Podcast. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I do not have a weather update today. I have zero weather updates also. Okay, good. Although I'd like to throw in here, uh, if this is the first Chef John podcast you've ever listened to, if things get a little slow, there may be some weather talk later. Keeping that in my back pocket. But what I do want to say is that we love hearing from our audience and that it is really special when you uh, reach out to us on our website where you can leave us messages or call our voicemail. Uh, Also, we love when you interact with us and our polls and the other things that we've been doing at Instagram and Twitter at Chef John Pod. So help us spread the word of the podcast, retweet, regram, tell your friends, take a banner ad on the highway, whatever really works for you. But we just love the fact that you are there for us and John, tell them about what we really want them to do on our podcast platforms. Tell them what's really important. To be quite frank, we really were looking for like five-star reviews with a comment. Above and beyond that, sure, everything else is awesome and great. And we'd love to hear from you, just like Andrew said. But really the five-star review and then, you know, leave a comment underneath. Apparently the algorithm, whatever that is, likes when you interact uh, with some kind of uh, text underneath the rating. So you know what? We don't want to upset the algorithm. Help us please the algorithm gods. So we don't have to throw anyone else into the volcano. Uh, And then what else? Oh, and just a reminder, our polls, our online polls are free and will always be free. Unlike these other podcasters overcharging for that stuff. So uh, anyway, holler at us, especially the voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Love it. Absolutely. And of course, because the world is being taken over by artificial intelligence, please do not upset the algorithm. We are going right into our first segment today, which has been foreshadowed in our opening in that we're going to talk about our voicemails because we have a really special voicemail. He gave us his name and his place, so we do not have to make one up for him, which, you know, of course is fun. But Chef John, let's listen to Lee from Kentucky. Please leave a message after the tone. Good morning, Chef John and Photog Andrew. Uh, Andrew, do you hate the word photog? Uh, I kind of do, so no no offense there. But anyway, greetings from the land of mutton and burgoo. Yes, of course, Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, my name is Lee, and uh, I'm just wondering, uh, Chef John, uh, do you have any interesting stories about because you're a chef conversations, such as because you're a chef, you've got to try this recipe as if, you needed a recipe. Surely there's got to be an interesting story there. Uh, you guys have a great day. Please behave yourselves. Uh, the stories <clears throat> and headlines of you guys being in jail uh, are a little bit disturbing, and I refuse to bail you out anymore. Uh, the land of Burgoo. All right. <laughs> Was that mutton and burgoo? Mutton and burgoo. All right. You get special extra points if you know what either of those things is. Mutton's a little easier, but burgoo, not so much. I know mutton was that old, big, adult, very, well, it's basically senior citizen lamb. (laughs) It's for people that think lamb is too tender and not gamey enough. What they do is they let the lamb get really old so it's tough and super gamey. 
And uh, apparently some people like it, possibly in Kentucky. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently Lee might be a fan of the mutton. Uh, but anyway, I assume everyone from Kentucky uh, that leaves us a voicemail has been drinking bourbon. And uh, I don't think Lee has <laughs> varied from that stereotype. Uh, apologies if that's incorrect. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Lee, that is a great question. Yeah. So interesting story, sort of in that vein. Someone found out I was a chef. Well, actually, they didn't find out I was a chef. They knew I was a chef. And they told me, oh, my God, you got to talk to my friend. And I'm not going to pretend to remember the name. This is 30 years ago. Uh, my friend has the best pancakes, the best pancake recipe, makes the best pancakes. Uh, whenever we go hunting, he's always the pancake guy at the cabin. And I don't know what he does, but it's if you ever meet this guy or wherever in the same room, you're going to get this pancake recipe. So very good. Very exciting. I probably remembered that for about you know three minutes and then it was lost in the brain cells. Um, but I don't know how much time went by, but at some point later in the future, maybe two, three years, who knows? There I am. I meet this guy and my friend remembers. He's like, oh, this is the pan. John, you got to listen to this. This guy makes the best pancakes. Uh, tell him how you do it. Let's call him Tim. You know what? Let's call him Lee. Lee McMutton. And so anyway, Lee says, I got this pancake recipe. And he starts to go into it. And he's talking about the, the powder you put in the bowl first. And I'm like, you mean flour? He's like, you know, the powder, the powder. And then there's an egg and there's some milk. And I'm like, yeah, I got the, the milk and the egg. That stuff makes sense. But the powder, he's like, you know, it's he's like it's uh, oh the bisquick it's a it's it comes in a yellow box anyway the guy's giving me the recipe off the bisquick box so i'm thinking i appreciate the thought and this my friend was like really really seemed to love these pancakes and apparently when you're you know super hungover on a hunting trip and you know lee mcmutton gets up early to make everyone pancakes you know it's probably you, you, you got to kind of set the scene and be in that time and space to really appreciate it. Uh, but needless to say, I was very disappointed with this <laughs> amazing top secret pancake recipe I was going to get. Uh, it was the box mix. He was basically reading directions of a package. Did he doctor it at all? Like add a little vanilla? I do not think, or at least I don't remember him mentioning any variants from the package but he thought he had nailed this like i can't believe no one else thought of it using this product that's literally made to so people that don't know how to cook can make pancakes uh but anyway i, I don't know why that sticks in my brain for someone that was wanting to share like a a fantastic recipe with me because i was a chef and they knew if anyone would appreciate this it would be me and uh, i certainly did appreciate it as a hilarious anecdote but not necessarily <laughs> as a great recipe to share uh, and then I got to build up first, like, hey, there's this guy I know does this thing. So anyway, needless to say, it was very anticlimactic. Well, when I listened to Lee's question, I was really excited because I really thought that we were going to break some new ground here. But little did we know that, uh, you know, it was going to be a Bisquick recipe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a common thing. People find out you're a chef and they want to share their, oh, my God, my aunt does this or my uncle did this. And you know, sometimes it's, oh, my, that does sound really good. I should try that. But quite often it's, you know, like I said, the setting, the family connection. Right. I mean, there's stuff that we've had that our families make that we just think is incredible. But, you know, lost in translation. You try to explain that to another person. 
And they're like, you know what? That sounds just like uh, Bisquick pancakes. So, uh, you know, you, you got to sort of be there. I, I think I've shared this in the podcast before. People will send me um, messages. Could I please do those crepes they make in Paris or that chili crab they make in Singapore? And it's like, no, I can't because we're not there. We're not in that street stand, that food booth, that food truck, whatever, because it will only be like that there. Uh, and some stuff, you just have to have that setting to make it really work. Or as we've talked about in New York for years and years and years, that you can't get a good bagel or good pizza anywhere but New York because of the water, right? right? Now, of course, the water definitely does influence these things. But I think it's more of the mindset that our water is the best, so it tastes great in the food and nothing could be the same. The power suggestion is very powerful in the business. Um, but it's a double-edged sword. So if you build things up too much, like, oh my God, this place has the best so-and-so, you know, you got to deliver. Otherwise, you know, un under promise over deliver is a, a great strategy for the restaurant catering business also. Right. Uh, but yes, I agree. All right. Well, thank you, Lee. And thank you for your uh, great question. And for all of you who are enjoying that segment, please add your thoughts on our voicemail. So thank you, Lee. Thank you. We're going to introduce yet another new segment here on the Chef John podcast, and it is things I regret making slash eating. Horror stories from the kitchen of Chef John and from me, too. But uh, Chef John, tell us, what do you regret making or eating? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is going to be uh, painful to recap because it was not pleasant. Now, and I'm not going to take all the blame here. This was a Michelle and John uh, co-produced a group effort. fiasco. Yes. <laughs> so we had, um, like a one pound brick of frozen calamari that, uh, we decided we would make a nice calamari spaghetti. Now, if you're not familiar with calamari, there's two ways to cook it incredibly quick. We're talking 30 seconds and it will be beautiful and tender and very nice. Or, you know, you can cook it for longer. It will get rubbery. It will get tough. But then after, you know, half hour, 40 minutes, it starts to tenderize. And then it's very nice again. Okay. So we were going with plan B because we were also putting in some new vegetable beds. Anyway, I tell Michelle, you know what, just leave it. On. It's done, but just put it on, you know, low. We'll just let it simmer while we work. It's got to get better and better and better. It's going to be awesome. It's already tender, but let's really let it go. So we went out and the time got away from us. We worked probably, it must've been close to two hours. And we come back in the house and the house smells like kind of calamari, but not <laughs> like old overcooked calamari, which no one can relate to that smell unless you actually do this, which I am not suggesting, but it was not a good smell. Uh, we <laughs> clearly, and I didn't even know you could do this. We clearly had overcooked the calamari. Now, one little sidebar here, usually the store we get the stuff from, it comes in this block. It's already the tubes and the tentacles, clean by professional, but this was actually whole. So Michelle painstakingly went through it, separated, you know, the innards and the legs and the, and then you got to kind of squeeze out that ink um, and then rinse it out. And we think there might just have been a little bit of that residual um, ink. Um, I forget the official word for it. Uh, I think it probably is the ink. Yes. Which gives you that minerality. If anyone's ever had squid ink pasta, very distinctive. Um, but apparently if you have some of that and you simmer it for like three and a half hours, bad things happen to both the taste and the aroma. 
So not only did our house smell like a combo between low tide and someone burned a fish fry and they just, it just kept burning. Um, which was only the second worst thing to happen. The smell took a week to, you know, even come close to dissipating, but the taste, the aftertaste on, on our palate lasted almost two days. Oh, it was horrendous. That's horrible. And it was one of the worst things we've ever made. We, you know, when we first put it together, we boil, had, you know, we boiled the spaghetti and we put it together and we, we thought the smell was just from it simmering and trapping the, you know, the, the steamy, uh, you know, evaporation in the house, all those hours. Uh, but no, it tasted like it smelled and it was horrific. And then we had the pleasure of tasting it on our palates for another two days. And we are kind of off calamari now for a while because that was horrific. So if anyone out there, uh, two things, if you've ever done that, I'd like to hear about it. And if you're one of these scientific type people, what exactly caused that horrendous odor and just brutal aftertaste? And I've cooked calamari many times. I've never experienced that. Your story makes me think. Number one, what lasted longer, the smell in your couch or the taste on your palate? And secondly, if it smelled that bad, why in the world did you eat it? I don't know. I fried fish before and the house didn't smell great, but the dinner was amazing. Mm. Um, and, you know, quick example, you do a quick stir fry with some Asian fish sauce. Might not be the most awesome smelling, you know, waff of this air that comes by your face, but it could not be more delicious when you dig in. So we realized it was very strong. But again, we didn't think like this is a reason to throw it away. Right. We're like, wow, we just really let this simmer way too long. We should have come in like an hour and a half, two hours ago. So that's the first thing. Um, and by the way, the couch really didn't smell. It was the entire house. <laughs> we have a leather couch, so I don't think it absorbs much in the way of uh, fabric odor. Thank God. Uh, but anyway, yes, we needed to call one of the people that clean up the crime scenes. That's the company we needed to have come in and sanitize everything. But anyway, it's finally gone. Michelle called it the entity. It went to whatever dimension it was from. <laughs> well, uh, I think the seafood industry is going to be rather upset with us after my story because mine is also fish related. I had an assignment for the New York Times. This goes back quite a while. And I was reminded of it because one of the photos from that photo shoot actually sold in stock. My photography is available with a stock agency, Adobe. And I sold an image of this dish called brandad. It's a mashed potato and salted codfish preparation. And what I didn't realize was the shortcut I was taking for the photograph to get through the photo shoot quicker made the dish completely inedible, made my entire studio just reek of salted fish. And it was horrendous. What I forgot to do or well, I didn't really forget I because I could read a recipe. I neglected to soak the fish long enough to get all the salt out of the fish. So not only was the uh, the dish rancidly salty, but it reeked and just stunk up the whole place. And the funny thing was, it was also awful looking. Yeah. It was like mashed potatoes with chunks of fish in it. Sure. It was horrible looking, uh, but that's what it was supposed to look like. So all in all, the photos looked appropriate for what the dish was, 
but it was awful. <laughs> and it was so much food because it was like five pounds of potatoes and like three pounds of fish. And it was just awful. We threw it all away. And it was heartbreaking because we were looking forward to it. There's an old saying, there's an old French saying uh, that roughly translates to there are fast brown dads and there are great brown dads, but there are no great fast brown dads. <laughs> so, yes, um, I've made the same mistake um, accidentally. You think you've soaked it long enough. You think you're changing the water enough, but then you make it and you're like, huh, I didn't. It's way too salty. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't want to put anyone off of rondad because properly made, it's one of the world's great foods. It's a great dish. You take salted cod and you soak it for three, four days mm -hmm. and you keep changing the water till it's just leached out all the salt pretty much, uh, and which is impossible. It's still a little bit salty no matter how long you soak it. But once it's soft, it almost has a texture of fresh fish again. Then you cook it usually in milk mm -hmm. uh, and then you smash it, puree it with the potatoes and you serve it on toasted bread. You cook in a crock, gratiné the top. And uh, it is amazing. It's one of the world's great appetizers. But if you do what you did, uh, you will never do what you did again. I've never made it again. And that's the problem. I used to live in an apartment in uh, Brooklyn. And the, the woman who lived um, underneath us would cook bacala on Sundays. So the smell would rise up into the house. And so every Sunday we were like, we got to get out of the house. We can't stay here while she's cooking. And it was that same smell. It was that hideous, like salted fish smell. All right. Well, now that everyone's lost their appetite. Aren't you glad you came to the Chef John podcast to talk about food? Not today. Next week, spoiled tuna sandwiches. <laughs> well, John, welcome to Pairings, our favorite new segment here on the Chef John podcast, where we talk about what we're watching and what it makes us want to eat. Why don't you go first? All right, I can go first. What I would love to talk about is a show that I just finished watching, completing the third season on HBO Max called Barry. And Barry is a story uh, starring Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live fame. It's a dark comedy set in LA. And Barry is a former soldier who has come back from war, damaged PTSD, and uh, has a lack of direction. And he's been sort of recruited by this uh, also former soldier guy who knew him or knew his parents or knew was friendly with him and turns him into a hitman. Now, Barry is far along in his career as a hitman at this point, And he uh, goes to LA on a job and falls in love with both a woman and acting. And now he is a working actor in L.A., but he's a hitman on the side, a reluctant hitman on the side. It is a very, very dark, dark comedy. Uh, I, I think by the time you get to the end of season three, you're kind of questioning whether it's actually a comedy anymore. Right. But Barry is fantastically written. Bill Hader is fantastic in it. And the, the surprise, uh, the, one of my favorite aspects of the show is Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler has had a resurgence. He's a completely over-the-top, funny character, and the drama of it holds together. So it's a great show. Barry being set in L.A., it's always making me think, because well, when I'm in L.A., the first thing I want to do is I want to go get Mexican food, particularly tacos. I love eating Mexican food. I don't get the same kind of Mexican food when you're on the East Coast. 
So whenever I'm in LA, I want, I want tacos. So when I'm watching the show and you're driving around in LA and he's, you know, occasionally dropping in or getting some takeout, I'm always thinking it's gotta be tacos, right? It has to be tacos because that's what I'm thinking about. So HBO max, get yourself some tacos, watch Barry, laugh a little at things that are really dark and disturbing. I love this pairing. I love the show. I think I agree with everything you say. It is very dark, but yet you still have the occasional laugh out loud moments. Now, by the way, uh, I'll go back to the show in a second, but you know why the tacos are better in LA than New York? Uh, because you're closer to Mexico? No, because the the water. <laughs> the water. Anyway, was that was, it, was that thing with, that you love when we do a callback? Callbacks, yes. We love callbacks. Uh, yeah, slowly but surely during this podcast, uh, Andrew's teaching me the movie business. <laughs> So yes, Barry, highly recommend it. I would enjoy a few tacos uh, while watching it. If you're a fan of the Chechen mafia, <laughs> there's, there's definitely this is definitely the show for you. And who is the actor that plays the bald? That's Noho Hank. Noho Hank. For me, that's one of the highlights of the show. I don't actually know his name off the top of my head, uh, but the character of Noho Hank bald with no eyebrows one of our great bald americans he's so funny it's such a great character and every line doesn't matter what he says i am a big fan of the comedic timing uh which is you know that's the hard part anyone can get be given a funny line yeah but if you don't deliver it just with that perfect timing it's just never as funny we would be remiss in not mentioning the actor's name and a little birdie just told me his name is anthony carrigan so anthony carrigan as noho hank on barry is fantastic yes i concur well my show sort of takes place in la once in a while uh it is comedians and cars getting coffee with the uh, lovely and talented uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And if uh, and most of these shows, I assume everyone has seen it, but maybe I shouldn't assume that. But if you haven't, it's exactly what the title says. <laughs> Jerry picks up another comedian in a car. If you're a car person, which I am not, I, I don't understand cars. I'm, I never had the car fetish, but many people do. And every episode, he has a different classic car or unusual car or stupid car or some car that fits with the, the comedian he's picking up. Um, you know, if it's a blue collar Midwest comedian, it, it'll be some Midwest blue collar car. Anyway, that's kind of one of the running deals with the show. Jerry picks up the comedian, they drive and they get coffee. And the entire show is them going back and forth in the cafe or in the car, just riffing. It's just a 30 minutes of riffing, which is, I think, the best comedy. I mean, I'll do a stand-up act. I'm down with stand-up. But if I can skip the stand-up and just hang out with the comedians after the show at the table where they're just having a drink or, or getting a coffee, that's where all the really funny stuff's going to happen. So I think it's a brilliant concept. Uh, total just genius phone-it-in post-retirement gig for Jerry. <laughs> it's not really like a job. And I could just don't even have to try, and it'll be better if I don't. Like one of those jobs where the more you try, the worse it would be. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't even pick favorites. I mean, every episode's great because they're all funny people. I've never seen one where I'm like, oh, I thought that person was going to be funny. Um, and some are a little more serious than others. Some, you know, does, you know, knows the people better than others. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you like comedy and you were just even a small uh, Jerry Seinfeld fan, it is must watch TV. One thing that bothers me, though, Jerry watches his diet. 
whenever he goes to one of these diners, the comedian he's with, who is, you know, generally not the, you know, picture of health, these people work late and drink lots uh, and live on fast food. Uh, they're always getting the, you know, chocolate chip pancakes layered with the bacon and the, you know, and then Jerry will get just a plate of eggs or an egg white omelet or a fruit bowl. And one of the running gags is the comedians would be like, that's, that's what you're having. And it's painful and, you know, do your thing. But I, I have a problem with someone eating a plate of three fried eggs with a fork with no toast. <gasps> like, how are you getting the yolk off the plate? Like, I can see he's trying to scrape it with a fork. It's not working. Nope. You can't lick the plate. Can we get this guy a piece of toast, please? <laughs> toast to table six. So uh, that's one thing that always annoys me in a sort of humorous way about the show, uh, which is why my pairing, just to thumb my nose at Jerry a little bit, because I know he's a big fan of the show. Hey, Jerry, <laughs> my order would be corned beef hash with a couple of poached eggs. And I'm talking the real stuff, the high test, straight from the can, fried up on that blacktop grill they have in the back of each diner that they have not cleaned since, you know, they put the thing in. Since the Eisenhower administration, yeah. That's right. And it crusts up and it gets just browned and crispy. And then they put the poached eggs on. Uh, and I would like to eat that while I watch Jerry uh, wrestle with his fried egg and fork situation. Um, so anyway, that's my show. That's my pairing. And, uh, you know, laughs, coffee, and low-carb food. What else would you want? <laughs> um, I have a favorite episode of that show. I have a couple, but the one with Howard Stern. Yes. So compelling. That was great. He was so interesting on that show. They clearly have known each other a very long time. The comedians that he has an intimate friendship with, it feels like you're kind of just eavesdropping on a conversation between friends. It doesn't feel like a performance. And it's a brilliant show and it falls in line with his uh, namesake show, which is basically a show about nothing, right? Exactly. It's just, it's fantastic, low budget. They film it on like GoPros in the car. Eddie Murphy was another one, somebody he came up with and knew forever. And those are really the more memorable episodes uh, that, that I'm thinking about. But yeah, yeah, great show. Um, check it out. Have a cup of coffee and maybe some corned beef hash. Yeah, put some corned beef right in your coffee. It would flow. As we march along here at the Chef John podcast, we are going to circle right back to one of our favorite segments, the top five list. And this week, our top five lists are movies or TV about food. And since I went first in pairings, I'm going to let John go first with his top five movies or TV about food. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Here we go. Uh, number five, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, probably the first movie I ever saw about food. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend to remember what age I was, but whatever it was, it was the perfect age to watch a show about a chocolate factory <laughs> because it was like, I could not think of a better place to go or thing to do. And I was like, is there, is there a place like this? Like you start wondering, like, is, is there any chance this could be reality? Like at that age, you're, you're, you're still making your way through fantasy and reality and, some things in movies actually are true in real life and some things aren't. And you're still kind of working your way through that. So I really wanted Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to be a real thing. I was a big candy bar fan at that age. Uh, in fact, my sister and I we used to help my mom and dad 
at the dry cleaners, Shines Cleaners in Manchester, New York. And every once in a while as a reward for helping out at the counter, we would get a certain amount of change and we could go to the barbershop next door that had a candy bar vending machine. And I would always get a Snickers bar or a Mr. Good bar uh, and a, a soda. I would go uh, squirt. If you've never had a Snickers bar and a squirt, I uh, highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, after that movie, of course, as you're unwrapping the bar, or the you're always fantasizing like, one of these days, there's going to be some kind of ticket. It's going to happen. Anyway, I just, I remember that movie and it was like at the perfect peak candy eating moment of my life. And then I saw the movie uh, with, of course, Gene, help me out. What's his name? Wilder. Gene Wilder, who could be a little scary for a kid. He kind of had one of those faces that was a little like kind of freaked you out. He definitely put a little freaky energy into that character. So yeah. I mean, I think it was intentional, of course, to make it a little bit of tension there. Um, And I won't spoil the movie because you're like the last person on earth that hasn't (laughs) hasn't seen it. But it's not all just, you know, chocolate and smiles. Uh, Number four, like water for chocolate. Oh, it sends a theme. Yes. Well, the theme ends with this one as far as chocolate goes. (laughs) If that was if that's where you were going. <laughs> that with. was my yeah. That was my observation. And you know this uh, this one kind of surprised me. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Michelle and I saw this uh, how long ago? We actually had to go to a theater uh, back in the olden times. Um, and it's just a really, just really great movie. Uh, family uh, food is the center. Uh, sort of the the uh, what's the word I want to use the the. The glue, the bomb, the salve. It, it, it's like what food is to most families, you know, even more exaggerated in this movie. And there's love stories and there's wacky escapades. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but, uh, you know, someone can't marry his true love. So he has to marry someone close to stay near them. And it's um, at one point, uh, the the one of the main characters actually, uh, cries and one of the tears hits the food and during the dinner people start crying and they don't know why it's because her tears were in the actual dish <laughs> uh, so stuff like that happens it sounds a little corny and uh, but anyway really great movie and the name of the movie is kind of interesting and I don't know if our audience who's not familiar with Mexican or Latin style hot chocolate knows this but it's not made with milk it's made with water hmm and you bring the water up to a simmer and you mix in your chocolate and it's, it's, that's how it's made. Um, so the expression like water for chocolate refers to water that's just about to boil is in someone that's romantically getting excited. They're referred to as like water for chocolate. That's how you would be described if you're a little hot under the collar for somebody. And there's lots of, you know, great food scenes and mole and quail with rose petal sauce and all this t- it's it's really it's kind of a fun movie and uh you know for the for the whole family as long as they're over probably 18 again it's a you know not about chocolate uh it's a, it's more about family and relationships and food which brings us to number three food inc probably you know almost single-handedly brought to america's consciousness we should probably be paying more attention to what we eat and how it's produced now, people our age, we were the first generation of the processed packaged food, really, where the parents both worked and there was not enough hours in the day. So you tore something open, you threw it in the microwave or you boiled it and stirred it together. And, you know, 
Um, and there was still the great homemade stuff on the weekend and the occasions, but that was a lot of the cooking. And we just took it for granted. It wasn't going to kill us. But then you get a little older and a movie like Food Inc. comes along and you're like, holy beep. I had no idea that's how the cattle industry works or hogs are raised. So I just was blown away by that movie. And I picked it for another reason. Um, I saw that during peak food blogger, media freeloader era of my career life. Um, I was getting, you know, invites to this, invites to that. And I got an email. There's a private screening of Food Inc. We'd like you to come check it out. Uh, are you interested? And oh, it's, it's free. I am there. Are there snacks? So it was one of those deals. I didn't expect anything. And I was just transfixed with this movie. And then I ended up you know, reading some more of his work and really getting into that. And I understood, finally was explained to me why people line up in McDonald's and fast food drive-thrus. It's the copious amounts of salt, sugar, and MSG they load this incredibly low quality, cheap food with, make it taste delicious, which it certainly does. You know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, I guess. But it really isn't the food people are addicted to. It's all those additives that make you chemically, physically want more of it as soon as you're done. It's that's not an accident. That's not a bug. That's like the feature of the program. So uh, that was a, an eye-opening movie. If you're into documentaries, which I know you are, uh, it's just a I think a perfectly done documentary. And you'll never think of processed food, fast food, or, or just food in general the same again if if you watch that. If you're not already hip to all that stuff. Yep. So now we're going to take a huge left turn, and now we're going to the complete other end of the spectrum. For number two, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. <laughs> Don't let the long name fool you. The premise is very simple. Uh, this is about a restaurant, and it is, um, you know, I'm, and I'm going to let Andrew help me out with the terminology after I go through this list. But I want to say surreal. It's very theatrically staged. It's filmed in a very ornate uh, colorful style. Everything's very visceral. Like you're, you, you can really just see, feel and smell things that are on screen. So um, I forget, I don't know people, I don't know who directed, who produced it, but uh, it was really a rich, rich tapestry they wove. Uh, but anyway, it's about a restaurant and a mobster, evil, evil mobster uh, with a mall. Is that what they call the mobster's gal? A mall, yes. But of course, she's just there because she's has to be and and she falls for a, an intellectual learned man. And then there's, of course, conflict between the person she likes and the evil mobster. And all this takes place at the restaurant where they all eat regularly. And as I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I love sauces, making sauces, uh, loved being the saucier whenever I was able to do that as a one of my duties. Uh, and the saucier in this movie is awesome and epic. And the scenes in the kitchen are really cool. Uh, but it is not necessarily about food. It is about everything else. <laughs> Lust, revenge, uh, gluttony. They're all in here and, and more uh, to a sometimes disgusting extent. Um, and it is a very memorable movie. And by the way, great soundtrack. All right. You'll never forget the movie, but you have forgotten the two main stars and the director. I don't know people and names and I face blindness, but this segment's perfect for you because after I 
finish with number one, you're going to enlighten me on all these things I should know. <laughs> uh, which brings us to number one, the greatest food movie ever made. I think it's without a doubt, The Big Night. Ah, uh. just a perfect food movie, uh, adorable and tragic, uh, optimistic yet. I don't know. Pessimistic. Can that be, can those both things be true at the same time? It is about a uh, couple of brothers come over from Italy, open up a restaurant. And of course they want to do everything completely authentically, but they don't get any business because people that, you know, that time and place did not want authentic Italian. They wanted American Italian, which the restaurant across the street did very well. <laughs> the antagonist in the movie is the restaurateur from across the street, very successful, pretends to be a fan of the brothers and pretends to want to help them out. And the way he's going to do this is book his good friend, Louis Prima, to come to the restaurant and have a meal and then tell all his celebrity friends about it. And boom, they'll be on the map. But that doesn't necessarily happen as they think. So I won't give anything else away, uh, but it is just a, a great movie about food, especially for a chef and for a cook, because it's it deals with that battle between what you want to cook and what your customers want to eat. And in fact, there's, a, there's so many great lines in the movie, the arch nemesis across the street, the, the successful restaurateur uh, tells uh, Primo at one point in the movie, it's a uh, Primo and Segundo. Did I say that right? Secondi. So the first, the old brother and the younger brother. Well, anyway, he tells Primo that uh, first you cook what they want, and then you cook what you want. Uh, so there's just these little like gems of wisdom in it. And I used to play this for my class at the Culinary Academy uh, on like, you know, the day when you want to phone a class in. Yep. And you'd be like, you know what? Everyone's tired of looking at these spreadsheets. A little something different day. We're going to watch Big Night. And we would, you know, we would go over all this stuff. And uh, Stanley Tucci plays Primo. And uh, just if there was ever a perfect casting for a part, it was Stanley Tucci in this one. And Stanley Tucci's whining to this guy one day about how business is hard and this and that. He's like, it's just too much. And the guy slams his fist on his desk and it startles everybody, like the audience, Stanley. And he says, there is never too much. There is only not enough which is another restaurant axiom. Mm -hmm. And Isabella Rossellini's in it, one of her greatest roles ever. Um, and I'll finish up with what I think is probably the best ending segment scene in a movie, food or otherwise. It is completely without dialogue. It's after this ill-conceived, illegitimate, ill uh, license to ill. I don't know what I want to say. Here. <laughs> oh, back to the Beastie Boys. All right. All back. Uh, but anyway... The night does not go as planned. The brothers have a big blowout on the beach, uh, possibly almost literally come to blows. Uh, and then the final scene of the movie is the next morning. Everything's trashed. The restaurant's empty, piles of dishes. Stanley Tucci uh, wanders in, starts cooking some scrambled eggs. There's the busboy passed out on the table. He gets up, starts setting a couple places. Um, and here comes his brother, who they, you know, came close to killing each other the night before comes in the kitchen. And there's this amazing scene where Stanley Tucci's character, uh, Primo cooks breakfast for the three of them. And there's not a word of dialogue, but it ties the movie up so perfectly that it just is perfection. So uh, that is my number one food movie of all time. The big night. 
Wow. That's quite a list. Your list is extremely chefy. Yes. I really enjoy your list. I've seen several of the movies on your list. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a favorite. It is something I've watched several times. I didn't realize that you mostly identified with Augustus Gloop. It's so much fun and trippy and weird and a little heady and creepy at times, but fantastic. Great film. Like Water for Chocolate is something that I saw when it came out, probably in the theater. And man, it was visually just so beautiful. Like just every scene was something that you just ate with your eyes. It had that sensibility to it where everything had sort of a sensual uh, connotation or underpinnings. Can I interrupt for a second? When you said that, you know what movie, the look of that movie reminded me of? I don't know if I'm crazy here. The Godfather. Is that is that nuts? No, because there's a particular warmth of that indoor lighting aspect that the the big scenes in the Godfather, yeah, the big, like scene, family dinner scenes and party scenes, I, really similar kind of look and feel. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right on that. And sort of the reverence for food that is shared in the Godfather as well. There was you know there's something about the mafia movies where. Um, when they do engage with food, it's almost a religious experience. And I think that that carries over into your number four film for sure. I love that you included a documentary film uh, and you are absolutely correct to say that it is something that I am fond of and, and interested in. Uh, food Inc. is a powerful movie. It's a movie that will make you think. It'll make you hopefully eat differently and at least understand the cultural sort of aspect of eating an American diet. And I think Michael Pollan has made many, many people much more aware of the things in the food industry that are not helpful, healthy, particularly good for the environment. Any, any and all of it uh, came through in that film. It's a really kind of frightening film uh, and it makes you wake up and think. So thank you for including that on this list. It's terrific. The cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. It's a lot of words, John. <laughs> I got paid by the word. This stars Helen Mirren. I love her in so many different things and also just fantastic in this film. And also Tim Roth, who is a sort of indie film darling in the 90s. And I think that during that time, it felt like there were so many good indie films that were coming out. I remember as a young man going to the Angelica Film Center on Houston Street in New York. And this was one of those films that I've seen there. And, you know, the fact that it is centered around food, again, just a great movie for this list. And of course, the Tucci Tour de Force, along with Anthony Shaloub, um, Big Night. I'm drawing a blank right now, but your chefdom will help me. What is the big pasta dish that they make? Timpano. Timpano, right. I made it one time and I got so many um, responses when the photos were published and everything was surrounding Big Night. So like Big Night did for Timpano what Willy Wonka did for chocolate. There's so many different things to love about it. And of course, it absolutely launched Stanley Tucci as a food icon, right? Where, you know, during the pandemic, he became sort of really famous for his Negronis. This became a thing on social media. And then, of course, he launched the show in Italy, which, you know, on some level was the heir apparent to the Bourdain audience. I don't know that they're comparable shows, but Tucci does a really great job of it. And he's a food lover and he's somebody who really, uh, I think, sort of launched a secondary aspect of his career that he really embraced and was celebrated for. So, it's a great list, John. The fact that I've seen all the movies on your list too is pretty impressive. 
but none of them made my list. You know, my list isn't quite as chefy as yours. So let me talk to you a little bit about my list. Please. And of course, as I preface it by saying it's not that chefy, number five is <laughs> Chef, <laughs> which stars John Favreau. It is loosely based on the life of uh, Roy Choi, who is a, the food truck impresario from LA. There's a few other people in the food world that I, I've met and have been around that that character is also sort of loosely compiled of different people in the industry. I actually met one of the people that the character was based on who had done exactly what the character had done. It dropped out of the high-end restaurant market as a celebrity chef in New York, dropped off the face of the earth, then resurfaced in Portland in a food truck. And that's exactly what this character does in the film. And it's uh, it's a really special look at how hard it is to do the job, right? And And how to find joy in it. And I think that that's something that you can relate to. I mean, you as a chef got out of the restaurant business, but have continued to be a chef in a very different venue for a really long time and you found joy in it. So I'm actually very surprised this movie didn't make your list, John. Well, you should be even more surprised I haven't seen it. No. <laughs> well, okay, good. So hopefully there's a few more on my list that you will uh, enjoy. For number four... I went animated. Ratatouille. I love this movie. I love animated movies to begin with. This was a film that was out when my daughter was young. Uh, so I'd watched it ad nauseum. But it's such a fun movie about the rat who wants to be a chef. It's just such a fun, aspirational film, whether it's designed for kids or not. None of those Pixar movies ever feel too kid-like for adults to watch. The, the themes are great and it's so much fun and the, the caricature of the French chef is fantastic. So if you have never seen this or you thought that it was just a movie for kids, you really need to watch Ratatouille. It's such a fun movie. So going from an animated children's movie, uh, I went super dark and a little bit old with my number three. Delicatessen. Now, I don't know if you know this movie. It's a German movie that was released back in, I believe, the very early 1990s. I think it was 1991. I saw this at that same indie film theater in New York, the Angelica. And it's about a landlord in a sort of post-apocalyptic time where grain is being used as currency because they are having a severe food shortage. And what he does is he puts ads in the paper and lures workers to his butcher shop. He lets them work for a little while, figures out whether or not they'll be missed. And then he butchers them for cheap meat and he sells it to the people who live in his building. So it's a little bit scary, a little bit sort of ridiculous, farcical movie. But it left an impression on me 30 plus years ago. And it was one of those first foreign movies that I had to watch it in subtitles, obviously. But it's one of those films that formulated my taste in foreign films. It's a great movie. Number two, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Now, I don't know if you know this film. This won a lot of awards. It's a documentary about a celebrated sushi chef and his restaurant, Sukiyabashi Jiro. And it's a 10-seat restaurant. It's received three Michelin stars. It's sushi only. And it's located in a Tokyo subway station. It is such a bizarre place to have a three-star Michelin restaurant that's this tiny little hole in the wall. But Jiro, at the time of the filming, was in his 80s. 
And one of the things that was really interesting about the film was the level of precision and the level of dedication it took to make sushi at this level. There's this famous scene in the movie where you have to learn how to make the egg sushi before anything else. And sushi chefs under his tutelage need to basically go through this process of learning how to make it. And it takes weeks and weeks and maybe months and months till it's absolutely perfect by his standards. And then he will allow you to move on. It's a fascinating look into a world that we don't really have a lot of access to all the time. And if you love sushi and you understand and, and appreciate the craft, it's definitely something you should engage in. And number one, Supersize Me by Morgan Spurlock. Now, this is a super famous movie where Morgan Spurlock underwent a personal experiment and ate nothing but McDonald's food for 30 days. And what he experienced in the midst of this, both physical and emotional, was really telling. And it was something that in Food Inc. and your list, this is sort of the other side of what happens when the food industry is less about what you put in your body and more about what they're selling you. And he experiences some really unpleasant side effects from eating this way. And it was really eye-opening. I used to teach a health ed class when I was still working as a teacher. And Supersize Me was just out on DVD at that point. And I was able to play it for classes. And then we would have discussions about it. I've had students come back to me five years, 10 years, 15 years later, telling me that my making them watch that film was an eye-opener for them and actually changed their relationship with fast food. So the combination of uh, my list and your list, there's a whole lot there for our food lovers out there. Yes. Great list. Notwithstanding the fact I haven't seen two of the movies. Okay. So let's take them from the top here, Chef. Now, I'm guessing the guy leaves a different line of work to do this food truck. No, he leaves being a chef. So like a, a restaurant gig to do the food truck gig. Yeah, he's a like a, almost a celebrity kind of chef, like a Michelin star chef. And I think, not that I've ever gotten that level, uh, but from what I hear and from what I've seen, that is a very common feeling. You get your Michelin stars and you do this and you do that and you got a full house. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's it? <laughs> I'm still not happy and satisfied. Now what? And I think all the chefs of that level do have that fantasy. Wouldn't it be great to get out of this restaurant and just cook food and see people's faces eating it in front of me without all the other BS? And back in the day when I was in it, I always used to refer to the restaurant business as blue collar show business because it has all the trappings of show business with the performance and the curtain calls and the, this, but it's just hard physical menial labor when you come right down to it. So it's like, you know, there's a disconnect there, like celebrity plumber, like it doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's such a weird business on that level. So that a fantasy of dropping out, buying a van and heading to the beach just to cook your favorite food. I think it's very enticing, not just for chefs, but to anyone that has a high power pressure job, man, it really would be cool to drop out and do X, Y, Z. You mean like drop out and live at the beach and do a podcast? Hey, don't give me any ideas. Now, of course, I'm in a bad area for that. As you know, the beaches around here are shark infested. You'll be killed within 10 minutes. But anyway, other than that, they're great. Also, I, you know, as you know, I don't have a great beach body, but that's another episode. I'm working on it. Ratatouille, 
Excellent movie. How could you find fault with one of the most adorable animated feature films of all time? All the stereotypes were dead on. <laughs> that would be my only actual criticism, though. If you're in the business, the stereotypes were so paint by number, like just perfect stereotype caricature. It was exactly what they intended, but uh, some of it was a little too close to home. <laughs> Great story. Rat wants to be a chef versus a chef becoming a rat, which is generally how it works. Delicatessen. As you know, San Francisco has some great indie film theaters, Roxy on Valencia uh, and so forth. So I believe Michelle and I saw that at the Roxy or one other, the other similar Red Vic or one of the, the small little, you know, 100 seat theaters. Really enjoyed it. Seems like weird, like a, a subtitle movie was like a thing like, oh, we're going to do subtitles. Like <laughs> now with streaming, it's like such a common thing. You don't even think about it. But yeah, to see like a really out there weird foreign film uh that had won awards but you didn't had never heard of any of the awards like the berlin film festival that's a thing so uh yes i enjoyed the movie you didn't give any spoilers away describing the the butcher's gig there because like two minutes into the movie you're like wait a minute i'm pretty sure <laughs> these guys slicing up people and the movie is 35 years old or something so you know the statute of limitations is up yeah, it's up on spoilers. Jiro Dreams of Sushi have not seen it. Really? Believe it or not. Now, I'll tell you what the deal is with this one. I've tried to see it probably 12 times. But you know how when you get on to Netflix or one of these streaming services, they'll do the what's hot, you know, the, the hit du jour? That always gets me. I'm like, oh, oh hold on a second. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson's in what? And then I'll start watching that. And then poor Jiro does not make the cut that night. So I've yet to watch it. Jiro's been bumped several times, uh, but I need to watch it. Uh, anyone that works out of a 10-seat restaurant, I want to see what's up with that. In fact, I'm going to get the phone number to that place and call and be like, excuse me, uh, I'd like to make a reservation, party of 11. So yes, I need to watch that movie. It's on my list. Uh, I don't know if I should watch Chef first or that one, probably that one. I love documentaries about anything and everything. Speaking of documentaries, Supersize me. I actually met Morgan Spurlock at a food blogger event in Seattle. I just started the blog and he was one of the, I don't think he was a keynote speaker, but he was at one of the pre-events, come meet Morgan, have some snacks. And so I, I got to talk to him for maybe five minutes, uh, brush with fame. And yes, fascinating movie, predictable movie in that uh, if someone said, hey, I'm going to eat McDonald's for 30 days straight. And you were like, all right, let me guess at what happens. A lot of those things come true. So uh, in that way, uh, I wasn't shocked. But to see it and to hear someone's firsthand account, uh, really, really impactful. And like I said, I used to be a junk food junkie when I was a line cook. And that was just fast, cheap and easy when you had 15 minutes for a break. Uh, and then you see something like that and you're like, man, I'm glad I'm not living on that stuff anymore. Right. Because it really is not something your body was built to use as fuel. This machine we live in and operate out of ain't built for that. Nope. So great choice. And uh, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen it, do yourself a favor, check it out. And that way you can really uh, shame your friends as to lead there on a regular basis. <laughs> so our last segment each episode, John and I discuss somebody who we would love to share a meal with. Dead or alive, historical or contemporary, 
Chef John, who do you want to eat with? I would like to eat with, ironically, an author. Like another one? Tom Robbins, who wrote the great, great novel, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and my personal favorite, Jitterbug Perfume, which was lesser known, lesser famous. Uh, but I loved those books, which is shocking because, as you know, I've probably read half a dozen books in my life. And he wrote like two of them. And what I liked about the books, it reminded me of food writing, the way he describes the sights and sounds and smells and feel and the textures. Um, it is very much similar to someone describing a scene out of a kitchen or a restaurant. I really connected to his descriptions. Uh, he's really funny writer. So I assume he would be really funny in real life. Only for that reason alone, I just would be interested in having a you know meal with him, uh, seeing if he is as funny as he seems to be when he writes. And then just get into uh, how he came up with all those different scenarios and plot lines. I'm going to take a wild guess and think he probably or assume he likes uh, Joseph Campbell also, one of my former fantasy dinner partners. If people haven't read it, the main character in Even Cowgirls Get the Blues is a, a woman with enormously oversized thumbs. Yes, played by Uma Thurman in the film. Yes, which is just so weird. And the film, probably not a great film, but the book is considered a, a classic. Uh, and generally considered, you know, his best work. But if I read a book, it's a little at a time. This was like, I couldn't put it down, a jitterbug perfume. And it took place simultaneously in different times. Like it starts with a really old king finding a gray hair. And back then they would try to kill you when they found the first white hair because you were clearly past your prime. You know, the king is dead, long live the new king. So it starts there and it simultaneously happens in the Pacific Northwest and in New Orleans. And um, it has to do with making a perfume and odors and scents. So just an interesting fellow I would like to share a meal with. You know, for somebody who doesn't read very much, you really want to eat with a lot of authors. I know. Well, that's probably a reaction to that. <laughs> Maybe, right. Insecurity and repressed shame, I think. <laughs> And of all the shame, repressed shame is the best shame for shame connoisseurs. That's really great, John. I really love the fact that you are exploring your desire to read more through this podcast. So uh, I, I highly applaud this. Uh, I, on the other hand, uh, I do read a lot. So I'm not going to have too many authors in here because this, uh, I want to expand my horizons a little bit. So uh, I have a concert to go to in a couple of weeks. And it's one that I bought tickets for two years ago. And it's to see Rage Against the Machine. So you know who I want to eat with, John? I want to eat with Tom Morello. Old man Morello's kid. Yeah, man. Guitarist, social activist, musical innovator, all around great guy. And he definitely has inherited the mantle of the hardest working man in show business because that guy never stops. He's got radio shows. He's in five different bands. He's unbelievable. Uh, he's also Harvard educated. He's the son of a Kenyan diplomat and a white woman from Illinois, I believe, is his mom. His mom is on his radio show every once in a while, Mary Morello. I think she's almost 100 years old. And she's the one who uh, instilled in him this sense of activism, being mixed race, 
he experienced a lot of uh, racism and a lot of problems growing up uh, interracial at that time. And he channeled all of that into his music and into his uh, social activism and has become one of the preeminent uh, musical artists of our time. So Tom Morello is a hero of mine from so many different perspectives. Uh, I think he and I are very similar in age. So we have a lot of the same musical interests, as well as the fact that I've been in love with his music for over 30 years. And I would love to meet him one day and have a meal. I have no idea what he would want to eat, but it wouldn't matter to me. It could be a hot dog on the corner just to get to talk to him would be fantastic. Well, that is a fabulous choice. Uh, rock God, completely underrated guitar God also, in uh, a really unique guitar style. Yep. Innovative. Enough to make it different and really unique. And you know... It's him. Absolutely. And I think we can all agree Rage Against the Machine, one of the great bands of all time. And I believe we've discussed this before, but nobody knows how to build a song to a crescendo, to a climax, to that, to a hook that just, you know, um, you know when you're supposed to start slam dancing. <laughs> and I know I've, I've told this anecdote before on the podcast. I think if I haven't, I'm going to now. And if I have, our lovely and talented producer can cut it out. <laughs> but Andrew and I were in a... Um, a gentleman's club in New Orleans one time. We have covered this ground, but... Well, maybe not this one part. That's what I mean. This could be an expansion on that story. And to be fair, this was work-related. We were with a group. It would have been highly rude not to go to this gentleman's club at 3 a.m. on Bourbon Street. So we were doing our civic duty as uh, conscientious food bloggers slash celebrity photographers. And anyway, Andrew and I are having a drink. And Killing in the Name of comes on at a very high volume. And I think that's when we both were like, wait, you like Rage? I like, great. Anyway, if you know the song, and if you don't, you got to go find the song after this podcast and listen to it. But there's a point where, you know, it rocks up and down. And then there's a part where it's vocals and it's soft and slow, but then it gets louder and faster. And it builds up to one of the great just explosions of rock just insanity. And it's just, you really need to just jump up and down and start moving around. And there's this point where you know it's coming. And there's many songs like this where you're like waiting for that hook. Anyway, it starts building up and Andrew and I are like bobbing our heads and we know it's coming. This is going to be great. And all of a sudden it gets to that point and the DJ breaks in the MC at this gentleman's club with one of those Ladies and gentlemen, it's in 30 minutes. Sandy's going to be on the Lemon Lime stage. Sandy. And don't forget to tip your waitresses. They work hard. Don't and he just does this ridiculous commercial and steps on the greatest, like, 30 seconds of Rage Against the Machine's career in a song. And both of us were so pissed. We were like, why would they do us like that? And I never forget that because I've never been so disappointed in a strip club DJ in my life. Uh, but anyway, great, great dinner choice. So before we leave this episode, John, please tell us, what did we learn? Well, I think what we learned is if you are ever going to make brandad, <laughs> you can't rush it. You got to soak that cod like it's never been soaked. And then when you think you've soaked it enough, change the water, soak it again, make it the next day. Just kidding. The next day, soak it with new fresh water and then make it. So that's definitely one thing we learned. Uh, if you have calamari simmering for spaghetti, just go ahead and eat it when it's tender. Do not <laughs> leave it on simmer 
and then go put in some vegetables in your garden for about three hours and then come back in hoping it will be delicious. It won't be. It will not be delicious. And not only will it not be delicious, you will have an aftertaste of the non-deliciousness for another two days. And then the last thing I think we learned, and if we didn't learn it, everybody needs to learn this. If you're an MC or a DJ or your cousin knows you have a good playlist and you're doing the songs at the wedding, just right from your phone, which is how DJs work these days, apparently. But if you are ever, ever playing Killing in the Name of at any event, strip club or otherwise, never at any point under any circumstances break into the song with an announcement. It is just not done. Sacrilege. It is sacrilege and certainly not sacrilegious. Well, thank you, John. I think we learned an awful lot during this episode and uh, that was a great capper. And like I say, I think we might've learned too much. We'll see what the feedback is. But I always feel like maybe we're, we're giving people too much information. But anyway, we'll take our chances. Thank you for listening. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. Join us for the next podcast. And in the meantime, stay safe, take care. And uh, I guess that's it. Say goodnight, Andrew. Good night, Andrew. Good night, Andrew.